My name is Tamar Garb. I'm the director here of the Institute of Advanced Studies. And um, it's my enormous pleasure to welcome Helen Margetz here this evening. Uh, one, because I'm very interested to hear what she has to say, but also because this is the inaugural event in a series that we're going to be um, developing together in the IAS over the next couple of years around turbulence, thinking about turbulence in uh, multiple ways, you know, environmental, political, um, you know, economic, etc. So really playing with that term and trying to see um, how it might be used now and how meaningful it is to think about in all these different uh, disciplines and uh, conversations. So um, it's great to have Helen Margetz here to talk about her new book, Political Turbulence, and to expand the conversation beyond the book itself as well. As you can see from the slide, um, Helen is director of the Oxford Not Internet... Sorry? You're not anymore. <laughs> oh, it was on, that was on the... Oh, you used to be, because that's I online. I May. Okay. I just don't want to be playing. Well, I, I took my source <laughs> from your webpage. So <laughs> I'm sorry about that. In any case, she's associated with the Oxford Internet Institute. I'm a professor. It's, not, it's okay. I'll explain. Okay, you'll, 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 you'll explain who you are. Um, but what I will say, and, I, and correct me if I'm wrong here, is that um, Helen is a political scientist specializing in digital era governance and politics. She's interested in investigating political behavior and political inst institutions in the age of the internet, social media, and big data. And that I take straight from your uh, webpage as well. So, um, yeah, um, many, many books. I'm, in fact, I won't go through all of them. There are over 100 publications, but you can look on the web and you will find a list of, of incredible achievements. Um, the last of which, or maybe not quite the last, but the most recent of which that I'm aware of is political turbulence. So. Um, welcome to UCL. In fact, Helen used to teach at UCL um, before she went to Oxford. So welcome back, and we look forward to hearing what you have to say. Thank you. Thank you, and um, thank you uh, all for coming. Yes, I, I am a professor at the Oxford Internet Institute, and I'm also um, a director of the Public Policy Programme at the Alan Turing Institute for Data Science. And does anyone from the Turing Institute know? Um, yeah, so when we first talked about me doing this lecture, um, uh, I think it was in an earlier kind of theme that um, the Institute had, and um, uh, I was asked what I would talk about, um, and I said, well, I might talk about um, this book, and uh, then it, I think it was Tamar suggested that maybe this theme would be more suited um, to this book, as indeed it is. Um, it is a, a couple of years old now, um, and the research was done prior to that. So if there's time at the end, I'll talk a little bit about how we're taking it forward at the moment and, and some current research. Um, so uh, there's the book. And I have to say that we didn't start off that, that uh, uh, book project thinking, oh, we'll write a book about um, political turbulence. Um, we thought we will uh, uh, carry out research and write a book about the relationship between social media and collective action, which is, after all, perhaps the most sort of fundamental activity of uh, politics, um, uh, activity taken by citizens geared at um, public or social goods. And we wanted to investigate that, that relationship. So the turbulence bit um, came later once we'd finished the research, rather at the top. 
And there's, I'll say something about that at the end because there's my co-authors. <coughs> the Oxford Internet Institute <coughs> is a multidisciplinary department of the University of Oxford. Um, and in that sense, I think this is rather an Oxford Internet Institute sort of book. Um, because I'm a political scientist and this is Peter John, he's at King's College now, was at UCL until quite recently. But this is Scott Hale, who's a computer scientist, and this is Taha Yusseri, who's a physicist. Um, and so it was a very multidisciplinary um, endeavour. So we wanted to think about the fact that um, people spend growing um, proportions of their lives on social media platforms, dripping with data, you're all dripping with data right now as you, um, um, as, as you sit there with you, even though your phones are in your pockets, they're probably mostly um, doing something. Um, and um, we wanted to think about what politics looked like, um, how it was changing in a changing world. We also, there is a generalized feeling, or there was at the time, when we started this research, it was round about the time of the um, Arab Spring. And there was at that time a feeling that it was kind of, as Paul Mason, the journalist, put it, it's all kicking off everywhere. But, and that was kind of, social media was implicated in that. But then there was the question, well, is it, is it really anything to do with social media? Um, we wanted to look at that question. And we also wanted to tackle the question of why surprising things um, kept happening. Um, uh, while we, um, along perhaps with some of you, had always teased economists um, about not predicting um, the financial crisis, um, we, as political scientists, did a pretty miserable job of predicting um, the Arab Spring, um, and uh, uh, commentators were still um, writing things like why the revolution won't be tweeted, um, and things like that right up and even beyond um, the events um, in Tunisia. So, um, surprising things seem to be happening, and why, why did why did um, why did politics seem so surprising? I guess that was another part of our question. And to cut to the chase, I guess our key argument about this, or our key hypothesis that we we looked at, was the idea that social media platforms allow something new. They allow very small acts of political participation. Um, liking something, following something, viewing something to do with some policy or political issue, even reading one of Donald Trump's tweets. That, is a, 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 that can be defined as a political act which has no pre-social media equivalent. Um, and we were, uh, that, that is the kind of driver of, of the argument I, I, I want to put to you. Um, as any political scientist will know, uh, uh, among you will know, I mean, politics has traditionally been quite kind of lumpy. If you wanted to participate in political life more than just voting, you really had to do something quite significant. You had to um, go to meetings or tramp the streets, knock on doors. As Oscar Wilde put it, um, the trouble with socialism is it cuts so dreadfully into the evenings. Um, and so the... The, the kind of, the way we've always seen it is a kind of ladder of participation and at the bottom you had things like voting and signing a petition and, you, you know, small acts. Um, and then at the top you have, I don't know, dying in armed struggle or dying for a cause or, 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 or risking your life at least, something like that. 
And what I'd like to suggest is that what social media do is they kind of draw people in at the bottom end of the ladder. They make it lower so that more people can get onto the first rung by introducing um, very small acts of politics. Now, I should say by saying that, um, and there are many audiences, maybe this one, um, that when they hear that, they're already bristling um, because that goes against um, a, a, a sort of tradition of political culture, particularly in Britain, which is that politics must be painful. It must sort of hurt in some way. It must, you must have to sort of suffer a bit. It doesn't work if you're just, um, you know, signing something or just looking at something that just doesn't count as politics. Um, this is a quote from Tony Wright, who was chair of the Parliamentary Public Administration Select Committee back all that time. And he said it to me because I was giving witness to that. I was a witness at that committee. And um, he asked me for some indication of what um, digital political participation um, might look like. Now, that was way before social media, but I made some suggestions like signing a, 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 a digital petition or some kind of digital action, some kind of email campaign, what there was around at the time. And he was very dismissive of that. And the thing about that view is it very, is very pervasive. I sit on a sort of board, and, and he, the, the same Tony Wright sits on it too. And in, a few years ago, I, I, I was asked to give a talk there, and I thought, well, I'll, I'll feed that back, quote back to him and see what he thinks now. Um, this is literally about three years ago. And I asked my colleagues, do you think he'll mind? You know, do you think he'd be embarrassed? And people said no, they thought it'd be all right. And as soon as I read out that quote, um, he was nodding really happily because that's still what he thinks and it is what a lot of people think. So this is a kind of slightly controversial view and there are all sorts of ways, as any of you familiar with these literatures will know, that participation, digital political participation, are, have been kind of denigrated as clicktivism and, clack, uh, clicktivism and um, uh, the idea that small things um, don't matter. And I want to suggest that um, small things do matter. Small things do matter because they can scale up to something really huge. Um, uh, that's Tahrir Square in, in Egypt. Um, uh, obviously, the people in that square are doing a big thing because they are risking their lives. But the way they got there was by um, a series of activities on social media platforms that somehow gave people a kind of signal of viability, the idea that um, lots of people were going to do this, that the idea of mar a march of millions was not pie in the sky. Um, over half a million um, people had signed up to one of the key um, Facebook pages, for example, in the process. And every time someone kind of clicks like or clicks follow on an initiative like that, they, it's an act because it sends a tiny signal of viability to all the other people who might be contemplating that act. So sometimes things scale up to something really huge. Another example of that is, is uh, what is now the political party Podemos in Spain, which has completely disrupted the Spanish party system, starting off as a movement on social media. And then, of course, it doesn't have to be an explicit kind of political campaign or a revolution. It could just be sharing this photograph of people in a German football stadium. And surely some people must have seen that photograph on some social media platform and actually 
thought differently in some way about their course of action if they were fleeing a war-torn country. So small things can scale up to something really huge. They almost always don't, though. Um, and I want to be quite clear about that. We, we have an incredible selection bias because we only see the ones that succeed. Um, uh, we, we, we see the movements um, that made it and we never see the ones that don't. But the thing about the data generated by any sort of digital political participation is we can now look at the ones that don't. If a petition failed in 1980, um, we don't really know about it now. It's highly unlikely we know unless there was some kind of um, archiving of, or a petitions project to archive petitions. But if it failed completely and just got six or seven signatures before the organiser got bored, we don't know about it. But now we have complete data sets of every single petition that is generated. And that's what this data shows. So all the dark red ones here are the ones that didn't do very well. Um, that shows time along the bottom and that shows number of signatures down the side. And the ones at the top, the yellow ones, are the ones that went right over 100,000 and then there was a parliamentary debate. So it's quite an interesting piece of data. It shows very well that 99.99% of petitions go absolutely nowhere. And that kind of finding is replicated in the US, the UK. It's replicated, you know, most tweets are never retweeted. Most Facebook posts are never shared. That lonely feeling you get when, it, you know, no, it seems that nobody's uh, retweeted you. Um, you're, 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 you're not alone in that anyway. Um, so, that is, is, is the story, um, and it's interesting to think about why do some succeed, but almost all of them fail? What's, what do the successful ones have in common? It's actually, we don't know that much about that. It's really difficult to predict. What I've indicated there on that graph is three petitions about a similar um, issue, they're all in support of not having a budget cull, which was government policy at the time, and I think has had a revival lately, but was was uh, uh, kind of cancelled or put in abeyance for, for several years after that successful petition that got 100,000 signatures. But then there's one that got like eight signatures and one that got like 3,000 signatures. And with loads of issues, you can find very similar issues, similar petitions, similar timing. Some fail, uh, uh, almost all of them fail, and a very, very few succeed. And that is a, a kind of phenomenon which replicates itself all over um, the internet, social media, and a lot of digital platforms. And I want to suggest that that's the kind of key to turbulence, if you like. That's a driver of turbulence in a, in, a, in, a, in a digital world. One thing we do know about the ones that succeed is that they, they succeed really fast. If they succeed, they succeed really fast. So those are all mobilizations that have got more than 10,000 signatures. And you can see they've all gone shooting up. Um, really fast in the first um, in, in the first few days. Not quite all of them. There's some outliers, but the general trend is that a lot of them will go um, really fast. Again, we see that pattern over 
and over again. We see a non-normal distribution um, of, of signatures. That would what a normal bell-shaped distribution would look like with the red line. The green line um, shows what the distribution of uh, petitions looks like. And again, something that's replicated in all sorts of areas. For, for the more mathematical among you, you, you know, there is a model showing the rate at which attention to a petition decays. It basically shows that in a, within about 10 hours, um, something, if, if, if something hasn't got around 3,000 signatures in about 10 hours, it's probably had it. Um, it's going to be digital dust. Um, it's not an absolute rule, but the vast majority, um, that is the case. And again, I mean, those are, those are petitions, but across all social media platforms, that is a very common pattern. These are YouTube videos um, uh, varying from the very frivolous, like Obama singing Call Me Maybe, surprise hit of 2012, <laughs> you know, right up to 40 million views, but, but an incredible number. Um, in the first um, first few days, and that's a logarithmic scale, so it doesn't look as as, as steep as it really does. Um, uh, much uh, infinitely more seriously, Neda Agha Sultan, the face of the Iranian protests in 2009, um, it was taken down when it got to a million uh, signatures, I think. But you know, again, straight up, this this sort of pattern of going straight up and then some sort of stasis. Um, this uh, campaign against the uh, perceived racist policing in the US, Eric Garner, I Can't Breathe. You see a two-stage thing there, um, uh, but it's not, it's not really a two-stage thing. It's that there was a campaign against um, a, 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 a mobilization at the original shooting and then another mobilization at the failure to in indict the police officers involved. Um, and you see that quite often. The reason it says no S-shape there is that the kind of theoretical foundations of this project, um, uh, the original um, research project, uh, kind of predicted S-shapes. We were looking for S-shapes. We were trying to test the models of the economist Thomas Schelling, who argued that when you have a mobilization, you will get an S-shape. You will get a gradual build-up of support. It will then kind of go up very quickly on the sort of vertical bit of the S and then tip over into critical mass. We were looking for S-shapes. There should be S-shapes there. That's what um, theory would have us believe. Um, we have had many arguments about this among the, uh, uh, the research team because obviously there's all sorts of ways of measuring S-shapes. But no dot, dot, dot S-shapes is very much uh, the ultimate consensus. Um, again, similar patterns for all the mobilizations against police in, policing in the US, which eventually led to the Black Lives Matter um, movement, the same picture of up, along, up. Uh, here's, a, uh, here's one of the many petitions um, that there were to um, block Donald Trump from entering the UK. Um, uh, um, uh, don't know, this is something which a lot of young people, um, I, I remember my, at the time, 13-year-old uh, son coming home from school, or 13 or 14-year-old, and saying, oh, I signed a petition to stop Donald Trump coming after he announced his Muslim ban before he ran for, for president. 
um, I think that illustrates something of, of, of the way, um, you, you know, in an earlier era, would we really have had UK school children kind of participating, however small a way, um, in, 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 in US politics? Um, anyway, the petition was incredibly successful. There was another one um, more recently when he, before he did actually come that went even higher, um, many millions. Um, but again, the same pattern. And finally, um, uh, well, not finally, because I could give you hundreds of examples, but I'm not going to. But this is the petition that was set up straight after uh, the uh, EU referendum in 2016. Um, this is quite an interesting one. Um, you, you, you might say, oh, well, it was stagnant for ages. How come it's a different pattern? Well, it was stagnant for ages because it was actually set up by a, a far-right organization um, who set it up because they thought that the Leave side would lose. And they set it up um, to say, if the result is close, there should be a rerun of the referendum. That was their, um, uh, that was their stance at the time. That was actually Farage's stance, uh, Nigel Farage's stance at the time. Um, uh, of course, they won unexpectedly. Um, so people unhappy about the result immediately pounce. It takes a little time to set up a petition so that here was one ready to go and it was perfect. Um, so they took it over and you can see it shot up. Must be one of the biggest petitions in history. I think it got four or five million in the end. Um, didn't turn around the result, unfortunately, but there did have to be a debate in Parliament. Um, but uh, uh, the, uh, the, the right-wing organisation that had set it up were furious and it was actually hacked by 4chan at one time but um, eventually restored by the um, petitions platform. So that's the kind of basis of the story. Just a couple of things about the, how we've kind of tried to research the dynamics of those mobilisations because obviously you know, there's a, there's a kind of chain reaction of events going on there. What, what, what does it look like? Well, there's two particular kind of influences at work on social media platforms. Um, and I think you can only really understand the way things kind of scale up like this or don't scale up like this by thinking about those two influences, which are kind of, they're, they're, they're predominant in the digital world. It's not just social media, it's Amazon, it's... It's, it's any digital platform you spend time on is likely um, to have these two kind of characteristics um, or these two forms of influence. One is that it's going to give you social information about what other people are doing. If you're on a digital platform, you're likely to know. Um, if you buy a book, you know the sales rank. If you're on Facebook, you know how many friends people get, how, have got, how many at times things have been liked and so on. It's, it's everywhere in the digital world. And we know from decades of social science research that social influence is a key influence um, on behaviour. We know it changes behaviour, um, information about what other people are doing. And the other thing is you, we're, it's so much easier to get your 15 minutes of fame than it used to be. You're visible in all sorts of ways that you didn't used to be. It could be just to a small number of people, I don't know, on Uber, for example, you're just visible um, to maybe your driver um, and, the, and the central control desk, or you're, you're, you're visible if you have a great many followers or you're a kind of influencer on Instagram, then you're visible to all those people. 
completely visible in, in real time, whatever action you take on that platform. That's new as well. We also know that that is a, a strong influence on the way people behave. So if we want to sort of understand what's going on in these platforms, I would argue that we do have to try and understand the effects of these um, forms of social influence. So you can see there, there's um, Twitter and Facebook, I think, kind of superimposed on top of each other um, uh, all the time, you know, followers. You can see trending information here, the most popular ones. I'll say something about that in a second. All these kind of numbers and ways of indicating what are the most popular topics, what people are talking about, what they're doing, what they're liking, um, are liable um, to influence the behaviour of any user on these platforms. Visibility was rather well illustrated um, in, the, uh, in the Ice Bucket Challenge of uh, 2014, I think it was. I don't know if anybody here participated in the Ice Bucket Challenge, but an awful lot of people did, including many um, celebrities. Um, I think I mention it, I mean, it was a kind of joke, but it was quite a, a powerful phenomenon. It did raise a lot of money, actually, which... Um, there was a lot of criticism at the time that it kind of displaced other activity, but the evidence is actually slightly more in favour of, of the kind of social good that it did in terms of raising money for an important area of research. Um, however, I think it illustrates very well um, the problem with visibility in that it's, it's rather an inefficient way to do things. We did quite a few experiments to try and understand how visibility works. One of the ways it, it, it works is it, it works via shaming. It shames people into doing something. Um, and um, you, you, for example, you, different sorts of people are shamed in different ways. So for example, we did one experiment looking at, um, you know, if you make people visible, are they more or less likely to contribute to public goods? And we found that different personality types behave very differently. So extroverts, uh, 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 sorry, not extroverts, um, pro-self, pro, pro sort of individualist type people um, are very shameable. They're, they'll always give more, they'll contribute more if they're visible. So if you want to raise money from a group of bankers, you know, that's the way to go. But then more cooperative pro-social um, uh, types can actually, will, are actually inclined to give less they're made visible. They don't like being shamed into things. It's just a tiny example, but it's it's quite, I believe, an important line of inquiry. You know, what's the differences between people and how they respond to these influences? Another way in which is in uh, uh, the, the sort of power of visibility is illustrated in the ice bucket challenge is that, so you know, millions and hundreds of millions of people did it, but only between a tenth and a fifth of those actually went on to donate the money. Because, of course, when you donated the money, you weren't visible. Um, so at that point, you didn't have the shaming mechanism. Um, so it, it illustrates the, both the power of visibility and also the weakness, that you kind of need this shaming um, mechanism, but you don't always know when to use it. This is um, uh, something we did, and I, I believe that this is a, a, a also a fruitful line of um, inquiry for the future. Every time a platform of any kind gets changed, the effect of that change plays out in the data somehow. And obviously, that's how Facebook and Google and Amazon, that's how they work. They change things and then they see the effect. 
But most of us, of course, don't have access to that kind of data. Anyway, we, we did have access to this data. This is the government petitions platform, um, and uh, we, we, we were scraping the platform every hour. That's how we got that other data that I showed you. And um, this shows the effect of a change that was made um, to introduce trending information. Um, the cabinet office who were running, the I think it was the cabinet office who were running the platform at the time, thought, let's introduce trending information. Let's be more cool, like Twitter, and you know, people will sign more petitions, um, and they'll just generally think um, that it's kind of uh, more, 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 more cool. Um, and um, but they didn't think it would change the distribution of signatures across petitions. Um, uh, and in fact, we had a bit of a discussion with them about that. Anyway, we were able to measure whether that happened or not. And what this graph shows actually um, is it shows um, the concentration um, of signatures before and after. What it basically shows is people didn't sign any more petitions, but they did sign the popular ones more at the expense of the other ones. Um, so it had completely the opposite effect to what they anticipated. And I think it shows the importance, you know, when a digital platform is changed um, and it's, it's got some kind of public or, 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 or social good kind of aim, um, you know, you need to look at the effects of that change. Um, but it illustrates um, the importance of things like trending information in influencing behavior. All that I'm talking about, I believe, is driving kind of in the political world um, unpredictability, instability, um, all the things that, that the word turbulence um, seems to encapsulate. In a way, what we're identifying here um, is the same sort of volatility as researchers have also identified in cultural markets. Um, so, I don't know if any of you have seen it, but there was a very interesting um, study uh, reported in Science and other places um, by uh, these, uh, uh, these sort of sociologists, physicists turned sociologists back in 2006. For me, this was a bit of an inspiration for some of the stuff we did here, um, where they looked at the effect of telling people whether songs were popular or not. Um, they compared sort of digital worlds uh, showing uh, uh, di they, uh, digital worlds where people, uh, they collaborated with a music platform and at the time there was no Spotify so they could incentivize people to participate by giving them free music. And they told one group which were the more popular songs and uh, a another group they told the complete opposite. They told them that the other songs were more popular. And um, it's, it's a, a very elegant study, in my view, and it shows how um, this, the, the, the existence of social information, of trending information, like in the previous image, drives instability by driving up popularity um, to the kind of, in a kind of winner-takes-all type phenomenon, um, and generally leading to instability in markets and making it very difficult to predict what will be popular. Because there's an element of, of randomness about it. Now, think of Ed Sheeran, for example. Um, I don't know if any of you are Ed Sheeran fans exactly, but probably most of you have heard The Shape of You, um, 
well, anyway, a billion people have heard that just on Spotify alone. Um, uh, incredible numbers whenever you look at artists like Ed Sheeran, incredible numbers from the spread and reach of their music. Is that because Ed Sheeran is an unparalleled genius? I don't think so. I think he's a bit like the kind of boy next door that's part of his charm. But I think the point is he could have been the boy next door because there were lots of budding Ed Sheerans and he made it. Um, just a thought, but I mean, you know, this is the kind of instability that I think, I don't think that what I'm talking about is not just about politics. You get these very small acts, i.e. streaming a song, which is quite different from, you know, going out and buying a single that you used to, you know, 30 years ago, um, or, or a CD. Um, streaming a song and then um, sending a tiny bit of a, a signal to the rest of the world that you like it and lots of people like you like it and it's going to be really, really popular so you're going to like it. And that's having a replicating process, a chain reaction of social information um, and little tiny acts of kind of music, um, music listening um, and support. And... If you think about that, um, it, you, you know, um, and, and if you think of the sort of intertwining of musical and political worlds, you know, think of the effect that might have. Now, Ed Sheeran hasn't really kind of entered into the political fray, um, but he's got plenty of time. He's only about 24 or something. Um, but we did see in the election in 2017 the grime artist Stormzy coming out um, in favour of Corbyn um, with um, some... Uh, uh, with some uh, uh, with some success, it seems we can't measure it. Um, and there you see um, a poster that he's endorsed, saying, with some social information, the Tories held Croydon by 165 votes, um, telling people that there's a very small gap. That's another sort of social information, um, and trying to incentivise people to vote. We don't, as I said, we don't know whether that worked, but you know. It is a kind of uh, possible um, signal for the future, you know, what if Eric, uh, Ed Sheeran um, uh, 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 were to kind of enter a political campaign like that, would it, would it have a, a big effect? I mean, another kind of characteristic of this world is, uh, goes against the, the kind of established order of political party systems. I mean, the traditional way we think about party systems is um, you kind of, you identify, or, or indeed collective action, you kind of identify with an issue and then afterwards you act to support that issue. Now I think we're seeing much more the phenomenon where you act and you identify later. You can act without identifying if you're doing something very small. Um, and of course, in, you know, Brexit is the classic example of that, um, where somehow our political, the political landscape in the UK is defined much more by the act of having voted to leave or remain rather than your party allegiance. Um, likely to see huge amounts of party switching in the future as people go with that. Finally, another phenomenon I hope I've explained that very difficult to get um, uh, that many people onto a square, very unlikely to happen, I'm not saying it's easy, 
But when it does happen, it could happen without any of the normal organisational trappings of a social movement or a, uh, or a revolution or any of the things that used to happen. So there are Brazilian protests um, uh, in, in, in 2014 and um, Dilma Rousseff, president at the time, said, you know, I want to talk to the leaders um, and was told, well, there aren't any. Um, and the point is that it is possible for these things to get off the ground without any of the things that might sustain them into the future. So what you're seeing here is um, a phenomenon that I think we have seen less of um, um, uh, in the past, where something like that can get going without any of the things it needs, like institutions, political parties, leaders, to take it into the future. So there's unsustainability to add to the other characteristics of contemporary mobilization. So just to sum up, tiny acts of participation scaling up to large-scale mobilizations, they mostly fail. They're influenced by social information and visibility, which is inefficient. They lack leaders, institutions, organizations, collective identity. That means that contemporary mobilization is unstable, unpredictable, and unsustainable. It's an what we called volatility here, and which many people call volatility. Um, we summed it up as political turbulence. You know, when we when we got this argument and accumulated that evidence, that's where um, we kind of arrived at the turbulence um, world. Um, and when we were looking, I can say, uh, if anyone's particularly interested in that later, I could say something about you know, the question of what democratic model kind of encapsulates this new political world. We called it chaotic pluralism. It's like the pluralist models of US um, political thought in the 1950s and 60s, Charles Lindblom and Robert Dahl and all the people who argued that society is um, uh, composed of heterogeneous um, uh, kind of groupings, um, that for every interest there will be a group, um, that you've got heterogeneity um, everywhere and the state acts as a kind of accommodation uh, 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 to, to kind of accommodate those interests and kind of bargain between them and, sorry, adjudicate um, between them, etc. It's It's kind of like a pluralist world, but it's much less organised. If you go back to that work of the... 50s and 60s, which we, we have done, of course, when we've been thinking about this, you realised it was quite an ordered vision that they had, you know, neat systems of interest groups and then theories of how interest groups worked and how they um, bargained with each other and um, were, were, were treated by the state. They were institutionalised. And that's not really what we're seeing here. It is much more chaotic. All those words, um, I've seen the sort of definition of your, your theme um, here in the Institute and several of those words were in your, your, your list, but I'm sure your, your, yours is much wider. These come from um, uh, uh, kind of just a few um, uh, uh, areas of, of, of academic uh, disciplines. Um, but all those things seem to sum up what we're talking about when we look at, at politics today, this idea that you can get you know, waves of support for something which seem to come from, from
blueprint from nowhere, the Me Too movement, or you know, US uh, school children campaigning for gun control, um, the transgender mo movement, all things that seem to have come, you, you know, for, from uh, to the outside world seems to have come, you, you know, very rapidly. Um, uh, how, what, what is the dynamics of that? It seems to look like this. It seems to be a chaotic system and that's where, actually originally we wanted to call this book Chaotic Pluralism um, to reflect the model that we tried to develop there. Um, but the publishers said that they didn't like the word chaotic and they didn't like the word pluralism. Um, so we had to change it really because they held all the cards. Um, but I mean, it is chaotic. It is a chaotic system. Turbulence is a chaotic system. Um, and all those characteristics of a, cha a chaotic system in the natural world um, are kind of true, I believe, or characterize what we're talking about. And there is a sense in which it might be more than a metaphor, that we might be able to... A lot of the models that I showed, showed you, or I didn't show you many models, but, you know, the models that we used to look at this um, world came from physics. Um, and... Um, there is much more of a case with the kind of data that we have now and the kind of things that with the phenomenon that we're looking at, you know, hundreds of millions of tiny acts, um, also uh, uh, can be modeled in kind of natural science ways, um, in ways that they haven't, we haven't been able to look at politics before. To do that um, is quite a technically complex um, uh, task. Uh, I was just, we were just discussing uh, when we started. I, I'm, as I said, working at the um, Alan Turing Institute at the moment, um, at the Alan Turing Institute for Data Science and Artificial Intelligence. Um, data science is a, is a big phenomenon, but it also has major implications for the social sciences. Um, and I think we have to develop new ways of looking at the world that reflect the world I'm talking about and the kind of data sources that might be available. There's quite a few barriers to that. We have much less data than we thought. Um, I've presented some, some of the data I've presented is actually impossible um, to collect now. The platforms have closed in a lot. Facebook has closed their open interface. It's much more difficult to get Facebook data um, than it used to. Um, the only platform that's really um, open um, is, is, is Twitter, which means there's far too much research on Twitter um, in relation to how much of this kind of activity goes on there. Um, modeling, as I said, new, new kind of modeling techniques. Um, experimentation, as I said, every single change to every platform plays out in data somewhere, but you have to kind of capture those natural experiments. And we have to look at concepts. I mean, Everyone, turbulence sounds good, volatility sounds good. The project we're working on at the moment is called volatility. If you say to people, has politics become more volatile, um, they'll probably say, well, they won't always say yes, but they'll probably be inclined to think that it has. Um, but then what does that really mean? Um, does it mean we're kind of switching from one issue more quickly or more often? Are there more issues? What does it really mean to say that? We need to unpack those concepts. Um, we need an ethical framework for it because if we're going to use this kind of data and do experiments on that kind of data, 
um, then we, 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 we need to have some kind of ethical system for doing that, as the Cambridge Analytica um, scandal with Facebook made very clear indeed. Um, and we have to have theoretical development to keep place. That's the idea of the chaotic pluralist model. Um, I think I'll stop there. Um, the new research is on political volatility. We, and if anybody's interested, you know, ask me afterwards. We are, we are gathering a lot of data. We're working with a, a systems biologist now and some concepts from chemistry and biology to try and understand the nature of volatility. It's, it's fantastically interesting because lots of the kind of uh, formulae that you use to measure associated concepts in chemistry um, and, and biology are actually the same formulae as some of the ones that we've traditionally used for some political science indicators of electoral systems and party systems. Um, but they've been kind of developed in, in, in parallel ways. So there's a question of whether you can get some kind of synergistic um, stream of thought um, going, which is a challenge. But anyway, I'll stop there. Thank you.